Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. Great to have, over the last couple of weeks, we've had Bobby and Jeremy here leading and teaching us in this discussion of Jesus's parables of grace. And for those of you who might uh, be wondering, having them here didn't mean that I had two weeks off. I uh, didn't have vacation, not at all, actually. I mean, I did have a birthday in there, thanks to the... Amazing! You guys, thanks to... The, that's amazing. Thanks to those of you who reached out and offered your condolences on my rapid aging. I really appreciate it. Which I just clear... I want to make it clear today that I am far closer to being on the younger side of the team than the older side, but I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus. We'll just keep going. Anyway, some of you know that we have been working our way this month... Um, getting ready for a transition that's coming up for us as a community with our Commons Kids Space. Sort of the word has been leaking out and we're super excited about the fact that most of you know that we have a lot of vibrancy in our community and lots of it derives from the fact that we have lots of little people in our community. And we're so thankful for that and excited to welcome a few more of them into our community with baptisms and dedications in a couple weeks here, as Yelena mentioned. But since we started our parish more than a year ago, we've been limited in our ability to serve some of our kids because of the room constraints that we have here in the Inglewood Community Association. We're thankful for the hosting that they do for us, but we just had some space issues, which is something that is changing for us over the next month, and we are so excited as we are going to have access to a large multi-purpose uh, space in the back of the facility here, and we're super excited about how this is going to help us to serve or help our staff and volunteers to tell the story of Jesus more effectively. It's going to help some of our children to engage more enthusiastically, and we're happy for the fact that it's going to allow us to provide some space for some of you in our community whose kids aren't quite old enough for Commons Kids, but they are still desperate to be moving around and talking all day on Sunday, so we want to try and provide some space for you in this season of your life, too. And we're going to have a little bit more to say about that and some instructions to give over the coming weeks, so thank you for being patient with us as we go through this transition together. Now, with that said, we're going to get back to parables, which I want to bring us back to by repeating something that I've said here before, and that's the fact that I love how we teach here at Commons because of how it shapes all of us with multiple voices. And I really do mean that it shapes we because it's beneficial for me to sit and listen to the other people on our team from time to time who bring their excitement and their humor and their insight to bear on these ancient texts. And this is so important when, like we did last week, we come across a really familiar story like that of the Good Samaritan. And besides the fact that I won't ever hear that famous story again without picturing Rob Lowe and those of you who are with us, you know what Jeremy was talking about, I really appreciated about how Jeremy walked us towards the provocative intent that was featured in this ancient text. That story invites all of us to consider the ways maybe that we have constructed the idea of grace in our spiritual journeys. And maybe we've idealized the idea of grace as this notion that the divine just might be more merciful and more kind than we are. And with that shaping our imaginations, what happens is God ends up sounding and looking an awful lot like Mr. Rogers or Mr. Dressup kind of guy. Only to find out that as Jesus tells these stories, as it happened in the ancient world, he confronted the religious sensibilities of his day. And as we wake up to that for ourselves, we start to see that those stories undermine and break apart the sanitized sweater vest version of the divine that we have maybe had for a while. 
And with this in mind, what happens is the divine doesn't, or it turns out to not be a super thrifty sheep herder, nerding out and counting all his sheep and making sure that all the little lambs are safe and clean, groomed and sanitized. No, the divine is a wild-eyed searcher in this story, eschewing all safety and security to bring us back from the hovels and the ravines that we hide ourselves in all the time. And where grace isn't just found in stories about outsiders like the Samaritan being nicer than we thought he should be, or in us taking the hint and doing a better job doing the right things. No, actually what happens as we listen to Jesus tell these stories is Jesus reveals grace as what happens to us when we realize that we are no different than our neighbor. The person that we love, the person we despise, the fortunate people around us, and then the unfortunate ones that we walk by all the time. And our eyes are open to how real life and meaningful life, eternal life is what Jesus called it when he's being interrogated by this lawyer in the story. This kind of life opens up to us when we stop having to do the work of figuring out who us and them are. And we can love and be loved without restriction which is Jesus' way. And that is a way that we are so undeserving of, for sure. But this is grace. And we're going to jump into another story of it in just a moment. But before we do that, let's pray together. Center our hearts and minds, if you would join me now. God, you welcome us at the table as we have just come. And you are shown most clearly to us in Jesus in the stories that he told and in the refreshing ways he welcomed and he ate with and he cared for his neighbors. And we ask, would you be present to us now as we come with our stories to the text? As always, we need fresh eyes to see and we need the quiet of these moments to help us hear. And we ask that you'd help us to do the work of taking these words and letting them come close enough to stretch us and challenge us and maybe even in some small way begin to restore us. And maybe where our views of grace are skewed, where we see ourselves far from who we want to be, from others' expectations or our perception of what yours might be, let us find those burdens lifted because we were never meant to carry them. And let us see new life coming, slowly, surely because it's Lent. But we pray that you'd hold us as we wait. We ask this in the name of Christ, our hope. Amen. Okay, we're going to jump right in today by taking a quick look at the context of our parable before we're going to circle back and look at a couple of things. And the story that we're looking at is pulled from Luke's gospel, the 11th chapter. And the context is this, that one day Jesus was praying. And the image is curious here because the text tells us that when Jesus finished praying, one of his disciples asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. And in my imagination, the disciples sort of sitting there, just like anxiously waiting for Jesus to be done. And maybe not even waiting because Jesus just sort of like gently exhales as he finishes praying and maybe just stirs slightly and this disciple's like, hey Jesus, could you teach us how to do that thing you're doing right there? And then perhaps a little embarrassed because he's imposed on the fact that God 
was talking to God. He kind of just sort of panics and he blurts out something about how other prophets have been teaching their disciples how to pray. Could you, could you teach us? So Jesus obliges and says, okay, when you pray, you need to say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And he goes on into what we call the Lord's Prayer. And we actually spent several weeks this last fall working through this prayer in a series we called The Problem of Prayer. So if you're interested in a more extensive deep dive on some of this concept and the challenges we face when we pray, you can always go and look at those messages if you'd like. But today I want to point to something that we didn't really talk about in that series. And it's the fact that Luke's version of Jesus' prayer instructions are different than Matthew's, which is what we focused on in that series. See, the prayer itself is more or less the same. But what Jesus is talking about and saying is different depending on who's telling the story. Matthew's version has Jesus giving this workshop where he's saying things like, don't pray in public, don't be long-winded, as though God's worried about long-distance charges, which is something many of us don't even know about anymore. And he gives them these instructions for prayer, and then he reminds them to forgive each other. But Luke, on the other hand, does this. He places Jesus' instructions in the middle of a busy work week. What we see is we see Jesus having dinner with some friends just before this, and then he teaches the disciples, and he gives them the parable we're going to look at for today. And then we see him confronting and dealing with these evil spirits, and it all seems a really, well, it just seems a little bit disjointed. And we're not going to spend too much time talking about the differences between the two, except to note that they're there. And that to some degree, while Jesus' instructions for prayer are quite simple, they come from and they land in really different places, which makes so much sense if you've ever tried to actually pray. If you've ever tried to make sense of what happens when we pray, or you've tried to untangle what someone means when they've told you that you should pray, or that they're praying for you, or when your own prayers seem to just echo in silence and solitude. The point is that even in the earliest forms of Christian memory making, as Jesus' friends collected stories about him, tried to get the details right, they remembered some of the specific words that he taught, but the working out of what prayer actually is, well, there was never actually a standard program, which just means that you and I shouldn't feel out of place when we catch ourselves muttering, God, I wish I could pray. Or when we find ourselves following rhythms of prayer given to us by someone else who says to us, when you pray, say this. And it seems to me that the stories we have of Jesus teaching his friends these words are much less about the formulas and the forms of prayer. And they're more about being like the disciple in the story. Just watching Jesus pray and being curious about what's going on there, and then having this intent to know what's happening. You know, philosopher and author Dallas Willard, he was famous for making the point that Jesus seems to have prayed a lot, and that as his followers, we have a tendency to minimize this. And in so doing, Willard thought, we make light of something that God's self seems to have treated as really important to being human. But to be clear, this didn't mean that Rillard had this over-spiritualized or sensationalized view of prayer. No, in fact, at one point, he actually defined prayer as merely talking to God about what we are doing together. 
Which makes sense why Jesus would teach his friends to acknowledge God as a loving parent and to make God's name beautiful in the world, to work for God's kingdom to be seen, to be thankful for daily food, to forgive others, to persevere in difficulty. And I hope that in some small way, maybe now in this moment, you realize that you pray more than you think you do. When you create and honor quiet moments in your life, and when you choose to interact with other people that you meet as siblings in God's great family, or when you advocate for fair wages or tax returns for those who are disenfranchised, maybe you advocate for generous refugee policies or for housing for those with physical limitations, maybe you just try to teach your kids to be thankful for their food. Or maybe you teach them to try to grow some of their own. Maybe you try to unplug your anger from time to time and you try to let offenses go. All of these things, when done with a heart that's turned towards God's goodness, they are prayer. And in this season of preparation, this longing that we have for newness that comes to us in Lent, maybe you can begin to see all the ways that Jesus is teaching you how to pray. All right, so back to Luke's account and the story he's going to tell, because right after Jesus gives his friends some instructions for prayer, we read that then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine has come on a journey, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked. My children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So there's the story. And before we go too far, I want to make a little note here, because biblical scholars have tried to give us some perspective on the social conditions that inform this story and the cultures that would have heard it for the first time. And if you grew up in a small town or in a tighter community, maybe a place in rural Alberta, Saskatchewan, whatever, or maybe in another part of the world, perhaps, you will understand this story better than I do, because I am a person who will not answer my doorbell if I am not expecting a package, or if I don't know that you're coming to visit. You can go ahead, you can knock, you can ring away, my my dog's just going to bark at you. I'm just not that interested in pamphlets, or in deals on security systems, or in discussing civic politics in my socks with somebody in a clipboard. And that's because I am pretty well situated in an urbanized ethos that's not built on the principle of reciprocity. And I have been for most of my adult life. Whereas some of you may have grown up in places where if you don't answer the door and buy whatever your neighbor's kid is selling, there are detrimental effects. And those negative social implications are based on being in a community that has high levels of connection and interdependence. And in the ancient world, those webs of connection were experiences as part of the local economy where people couldn't buy or sell anything. They couldn't acquire or make anything with their hands without having a sense of connection to those who were all around them. And as a result, how you did business mattered. 
And how helpful you were as a neighbor mattered. And if you know anything about rural communities, even in our own country today, you know that they're like this to some degree. If you aren't honest, you are not going to be in business for very long. And if you don't buy your friend's girl guide cookies, they will not come to your yard sale. Because ultimately, smaller, tighter communities, both now and in the ancient worlds, they survive as people recognize their reliance on each other, and the need for reciprocity, which is one of the features at play in the story. You have one Palestinian neighbor, he has an unexpected friend arrive in the cool of the night, and he's gone to ask a neighbor for some bread. And some scholars think that there's an implication of reciprocity here. Basically, the guy's saying, I'll bring you three loaves tomorrow once I can make some. And you know what? This idea isn't such a bad thing. In fact, most of our closest friendships and relationships are built on this idea that there's some give and there's some take. There's some sense of mutual care for each other, and we'd probably all be better off being a little less grumpy like me if we used reciprocity to be better neighbors and better friends. Sure, we need to be careful with those who are always asking for our attention and our resources and our affection without ever giving anything back, but it wouldn't hurt us sometimes to choose to extend ourselves to others, taking the first steps that can blossom into meaningful connections because we aren't meant to be alone. And it's the fact that this kind of perspective is at play in the story that makes this story so hard to unravel. Because look, Jesus is trying to teach his friends how to pray. Hence, the Lord's prayer that he gives them. And this story that he tells us is part of the lesson. Suppose you go to your friend, Jesus says, and you're in a tough spot. Others are counting on you, and because you either didn't plan right or something happened, whatever, you're in a bind. And you ask your neighbor, hey, I really need some help. To which your neighbor says, no, and rolls over and goes back to sleep. The point is that the surrogate for God in the story the neighbor of the guy who needs help can't be bothered. And yes, scholars try to point out that we should imagine this guy sleeping in a one-room house with his entire family, and the guy inside is basically saying, I don't really care about the workings of reciprocity right now. I'm not waking up my family, which probably just means he had a teething toddler and he'd finally gotten the kid to shut up. But seriously, that is a crazy image of the divine, if you think about it. One that not nearly enough biblical commentators pay attention to and pick up. And we're going to explore this in a second. But first, we need to look quickly at the hinge of the story. Which is this Greek word, anaidea. See, in the story, the desperate neighbor is at the door. And the groggy neighbor ignores him. And then Jesus hops into the narrative and tells his disciples, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, that's the verb, I can't say it, right? There we go. Got it right. Your shameless audacity is what he's saying. You will surely get, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Now, this NIV translation that we have of the verb that I've read to you isn't too bad, actually. But what we don't see here today is how translators have grappled with this word's meaning. 
For example, the NRSV, which is an academic translation, settles on this translation. It says, at least because of his persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. But then, too, we need to look at the progression of the NIV's work on this term. Because in 1978, if you were looking at an NIV Bible, you would have read, yet because of the man's persistence, we have already heard that, he will get up and give him what he needs. But then by 1984, you would have read, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him what he needs. And the reality is that the shift to where the NIV is now is actually what I think is a healthy one, this language of shameless audacity, because it corrects an error in translation that goes all the way back to the second century in the church's history. Because as Klein Snodgrass, he's a scholar of the Greek language, he points out that our database of ancient Greek manuscripts actually lists this word, anaidea, 200 times. I'm going to get it out before the end of the sermon, don't you worry. Because this word, what it happens, it appears in our current NIV as shameless audacity. It refers to people who have no proper sense of shame and willingly engage in improper conduct. And almost all other ancient instances of this verb are demonstrably negative, except for early Christian thinkers and translators who read this story about Jesus with the two neighbors, and they felt that Jesus must have been talking about the desperate neighbor's persistence. And why did they think that? Well, because as Luke tells the parable, he then says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find, knock, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, and to the one that knocks, the door will be opened. And if you're just giving those words a cursory look, just sort of breezing through the story, you might be tempted to think that this whole thing is just about how to pray. Ask, seek, knock. Everyone who does it pulls it off if they persist. And the implication is that like the neighbor who went to his friend and stuck with it till he got what he needed, you and I just might have to ask and look and search a lot as we pray. Fine. The problem is, is that that viewpoint totally misuses this Greek verb. And it skips over the fact that we still have a picture of a God who can't be bothered to get out of bed. Well, almost. Because everybody listening to Jesus would have been well aware of what the appropriate response of a neighbor to a midnight request for bread should be. The rules and the expectations of reciprocity and social decorum would have dictated that the neighbor ask for help and the neighbor get up to help. Both to save the one guy the embarrassment of being a host with empty cupboards, but then also to spare the other guy the shame of being a person who doesn't help his friends when they're in need. He's not following the rules of appropriate social behavior. And if we remember this, that Jesus is teaching us this story while talking to his disciples about prayer, then it makes sense that translators in the first few centuries of the church's life, they would hear Jesus telling the disciples to be persistent because God will eventually wake up. God will show up because reciprocity requires it. And that's where this story becomes a parable of grace because that's not what Jesus was saying. In fact, the parable says, in effect, God doesn't respond to you out of obligation, 
out of some compulsion to do what is required because you followed the rules or because you've been persistent. No, Jesus says the opposite. He says that only shameless audacity actually stirs the sleeping neighbor. Only that will stir God to action. And we're going to come back to that in a second because Robert Capon observes how if you imagine a world and the idea of faith is defined by reciprocity, then statements like ask and it will be given to you, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be opened, they make it sound like persistence is what devotion looks like. Just ask and keep asking and it'll come. And Capon quite rightly rejects this idea, as I imagine some of us might too. Because we probably all know someone or we know some part of our own story for which this just has not been true. A time when we repeatedly prayed or someone that we love was doing so and we carried our sorrow and we carried our illness, we carried our weakness faithfully and no relief ever came. And how can we make sense of this? Well, the use of this Greek verb can help us. Because in the ancient world, this word often appeared in lists with other offenses that people committed or experienced. Things like being a reckless person or being unjust or having no self-control. Being anxious and afraid, being deceitful, being out of one's mind having no morals, having, having or being in a relationship with someone who's harsh or wasteful, being betrayed by another person. And when you take this definition, the story totally changes. It goes from being a story about a respectable person who's a little short on flour, who dutifully and quietly hops over his equally respectable neighbor's white picket fence to gently knock and ask for a favor. It goes from being that to being a story about us and all our fractured ways of living in the world and the shameful ways that we hurt each other and the sinister ways that we harm our own beautiful souls and how at the end of our strength and our good intentions and all our attempts to follow the rules, we will stumble to the door of God's goodness in the middle of our darkest and most vulnerable nights. And what will save you there, Jesus says, what opens the door of grace will not be your respectable request or God's pandering willingness to open it when you have finally knocked long enough and hard enough. No, it will be your shameless audacity. The fact that you would dare to hope that in being honest about who you are and about all that's happened and about who you want to be, that the divine would answer. And maybe as we talk about a story like this, you've realized that your idea of faith is actually built on trying to be persistent. And maybe that's left you worn out and tired and confused. Or maybe it's more than that. Maybe you're actually disillusioned with the idea of faith because somehow along the line, you've come to a place in your story where all of your asking and your searching and your knocking haven't spared you the pain of losing freedom or betraying a friendship or being rejected or failing in a really crucial moment. 
And if so, my hope today, first, is that you would hear Jesus' instructions of how to pray. Because they're so simple. Just, God, let your kingdom come because it's better than my world. And give me daily bread because you're generous, not because I've earned it. And would you forgive and help me to forgive others? Help me to get past keeping score of the hurt and the pain that just sort of breezes through my life? But I also hope, too, that you would see maybe for the first time that grace is not what happens to people who have a reciprocal relationship with God. With all their accounts in good standing and stellar behavior somehow bringing what's best to them. No, instead, that you would see that grace is a place that we come to, often in the dark and in desperation, where we realize that we have never had things under control anyways. And there's no shame in that, because God's already opened the door to meet us there. Let's pray. God, just like the disciple in the story, we, even in this moment, we need you to teach us how to pray. We need our, maybe our eyes and our imaginations to be opened to how the rhythms of our life with you, these things can become prayer and we can begin to see our work with you in our relationships, in our neighborhoods, in our homes. We can begin to see those as spaces and places of expression of our deepest longing and our deepest confession and our wishes for a future marked by your goodness. We ask that you would help us in this. Help us to see to the hinges and the hints of this story. How you don't require reciprocity from us and frankly, we can't ever offer you reciprocity. All we have is our honesty. And this is true today for every one of us sitting in this room. You know and see our stories. And we pray that you would give us courage to hold shameless hope as we know you see us clearly. And we pray that you'd let us or lead us to a place where we could let go of this idea of faith measured only in persistence and our constant efforts to keep up performances and to embrace instead a story of grace that's more true than all of our self-improvement, all of our effort. And it's built solely on your kindness toward us. Hold us now as we move from this space into all that we face. And we ask this in the name of Christ, who is our hope. Amen.